Good morning, Wild Street. If I haven't met you before, my name is Kurt and I'm one of the ministers of Wild Street and St Matt's. It's a pleasure to have you along this morning uh, to look into the second part of our series in Ecclesiastes. Um, I'm excited about it. I enjoyed the kids' talk this morning. I always love Eleanor's kids' talks. There was so much. I wish I'd watched it before I prepared my sermon, but it's so good. We do, we do agree, right? Uh, let me pray and we're going to look at what God has to say today. Father God, we want to praise you and thank you this morning. Because we get to sit here and listen to what you have to say. We get to, to be at your feet and have the God of the universe speak to us. And so we praise you. We praise you that even though we're not face to face, that your spirit that you have given to us to help us understand your word is with every one of those people who call themselves followers of Jesus. And so we thank you now that you're doing that work in us as a people to conform us to the image of Jesus through your word. And we pray you do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to start this morning with a bit of story. I'm going to go back in my little history of my life to a time when my dad made a flying fox. Uh, now, a flying fox is a long piece of wire from one tree typically to another tree, so I think 100 metres from the top of our property to the other. He made this long flying fox. He put a big one of these things on it, and I jumped on it. Okay. Now, one of the things he hadn't done at that point, he'd put the wire up, but he hadn't put any way of stopping the flying fox. Okay, typically you put like a bolt or something like that, so it kind of kicks up. At that point he hadn't put it, but I was really, really keen to try the flying fox, and I thought, she'll be right, I don't need a stopper, I'll be right. So I jumped on the flying fox at the top of the property, and I flew all the way down, I kept going, I thought, maybe I'll slow down, maybe I'll slow down, maybe I'll slow down, and I didn't slow down, and I went straight into the tree, full of sap, ants, and then I basically slid down to the bottom of the tree, <laughs> a mess. I wanted to test out the flying fox. I wanted to be a crash test dummy. A crash literal idiot, maybe. Crash test idiot. If you're new with us this morning, uh, we're exploring the book of Ecclesiastes, a book written by a teacher who is trying to make sense of the world around him, of, of the life that he's living in order to make the most of the life that he's living. And to do that, he, he ponders life and then he experiments with life to see how he can get the best out of it, how he can make it really work, how to, how to hack life to make it work for him. And so as Kieran mentioned, and Eleanor as well, the question that's driving this search in Ecclesiastes is, is, is about ultimate gain. How can a person have ultimate gain for his toil or ultimate profit? And his conclusion that he lets you in on from the third verse of the whole book is that, uh, that life is hebel. That, that, that's, the, that's the original word, but it, it means fleeting, futile, uh, it, it, frustrating. It, it's kind of here one moment, it's gone the next. Why? Because his observation of life is kind of a God-centered understanding of life. And that is, our world is good, but cursed. I say it to my scripture kids. We started off with a good, good world. It was good, good. And then after chapter 3, it's good, bad. Our world is a good place, but it's a cursed world. It doesn't work properly. And so one way he knows that is the case, that the, the preacher, is because what he's attempted to do is to do a crash test life, to, to do experiments to see if human beings can, at the end, be the ultimate masters of life. And so this morning we're going to look at four of those experiments. The first crash test is study. 
The first crash test is study. I'm going to be reading from verse 12 of chapter 1. It says this, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that's done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, are chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Now the teacher here is either, either Solomon or we've said writing from, someone writing from Solomon's perspective and he decides to study life to figure out how it works, to figure out how to, if he can gain anything from it. And his observation is that people are running around trying to get ultimate gain, but in the end they come up with nothing. He says that the world is crooked. The, the, way, the, way our, the fabric of our world is kind of crooked, like a crooked stick, and, and we can't make it straight again. It's, it's lacking. It's, it's not enough there. And we sit around counting, thinking if we count enough things, then we can make more. So the teacher knows our good world is cursed, because he's read the first three ch- uh, chapters of the Bible. Our good world is cursed because of our rejection of God. It, it's broken. God has made our world a place where ultimate gain apart from him is not, it's futile. The teacher gets this, he understands this as he observes the world and it it depresses him. Look at verse 16. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled of Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. He says, out of all the people who are around, I knew more than anyone else. I'd studied more than anything else. I'd experienced so much more of life. But in the end, I figured that it was all fleeting. Knowing heaps of stuff only helped him know how broken the world is. The more he understood about reality, the more he understood and engaged life and the experience of life, the more he understood this is just busted. How futile it is to try and think you can end up ultimately on top. It's like, he says, it's like chasing the wind. It's like chasing the wind. So I want you to try and chase the wind now. All right? Come on. Uh, you're not here with me, and if we were together, it'd be so much cooler. And I, I maybe have a bit of a contest to see who can chase the wind better. Have a chase. Grab it. Grab it. Here's the reality. There is no book. There's no course. There's no therapy. There's no life coaching that will enable you to beat the brokenness of this world and be the master of the universe. Now, does that mean all things are worthless? Like learning anything, studying anything is useless? That, I, that the guys doing a HSC in a couple of weeks' time shouldn't even bother because it's a waste of time? Well, they'd like, they'd like to think that, but that, no. We're going to see that some ways of thinking and living are better than others. But they will never let you ultimately master life because we're in a good, bad world. A good but cursed world. They will never let you be ultimately fulfilled. They will never make you master or God of this world. Test one, study, crash. 
Test two, pleasure. Test two, pleasure. Chapter one, verse two. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. He asks, how can I live the good life? Well, what about heaps of laughing? What about heaps of laughing? Lining up, he was the king, all right, lining up all the funniest people he could find to make him laugh, drink a bunch of wine, get cheery, all the while asking yourselves, while you're doing that, what gain am I getting? What gain am I getting? And then in verses 4 to 10, he builds himself effectively a pleasure city. And, and like Eleanor said, it's, like, it's the same language that used, it's used for the Garden of Eden itself. He tries to build his own Garden of Eden inside with houses and vineyards and beautiful gardens and pools and food and drink and, and men and women to get him anything he wanted. If he wanted something, he, he got it. If he wanted a group of people to get together and sing uh, different songs from musicals, he could have done that. I would have liked to have done that. Uh, he, if he wanted to get a group of guys together to play basketball, he could have done that. If he, if he wanted to play cards, he could have done that. He, it was pleasure city. It was anything he wanted. He, he was creating his own little garden. And, and then the women, he had a whole bunch of women who wanted to sleep with him as well. He makes this pleasure city to figure out whether pleasure can give you ultimate profit, ultimate gain, make you ultimate master in life. Verse 10, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for my labor. And so he says here, look, I, I did have reward there. I, I had pleasure at the time. I had lots of fun at the time doing all these things. But, verse 11, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I'd told to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. Crash. He hit the tree. No gain. I, I looked at how much pleasure I sought and how much I sought after it, and in the end, there was a futility to it. It felt good at the time, but it never gave me the ultimate satisfaction I was seeking. Uh, he was constantly grabbing for more and grabbing for more and grabbing for more and grabbing for more, and it never filled him up. It never. I want you to do it again. Grab your hands, use your hands, and grab for that wind. Grab for that wind. Grab for that wind. Back then, if anyone was going to get ultimate gain from pleasure, it was the king. But here's the reality for us: we live like kings. We live like kings. Our, our whole, in some senses, our whole economy is built on the idea that we can live like kings. And so, just like the king, we chase after it, don't we? Just one more chocolate, one more girlfriend, one more boyfriend, one more ski trip, one more experience, one more iPhone, one more laptop, one more fishing trip, one more drug, one more, one more streaming service, one more experience thinking it will ultimately satisfy us. Test two Pleasure, crash, crash. Test three, wise living. Test three, wise living. Verse 13, I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. 
The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in the darkness. Now, just in case you thought wisdom was a waste of time because, you know, it doesn't have ultimate gain, he says, no, no, no. There is gain in wisdom compared to folly. It's better to live wisely in touch with reality than to be an idiot and and run into a tree on a flying fox. But, second half of verse 14, but I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man, like the fool, will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. No gain. It's better to be wise than foolish, yes. But in the end, no gain. Because why? Both die. See, that is the big tree at the end of everyone's life the tree that we can't miss, the tree that the flying fox is heading towards. We're all headed towards the tree of death. And so as we hit death, he says that whether you're wise or foolish in this life, both are quickly forgotten. There's no ultimate gain. It will go better for you if you live wisely, but living wisely can't beat death. Test three, wise living, crash. Test four, Hard work, hard work. Verse 18, I hated all the things I toiled for under the sun. Why? Because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who, who knows whether he'll be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all his work into which I've poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is vanity. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless or vanity and a great misfortune. What does he do? He looks at his work and he hates his work. He hates his hard work, his toil, because ultimately what has to happen? He, has to, he, he dies, he hits that wall, that tree of death, and then he has to give it to someone else. And he, has, he says he has no control over who it goes to. And so he thinks to himself, how futile, how evil. A life chasing after gain, trying so hard to get it. And then all you do is pass it on to someone you don't even know. Or if you do know, they squander what you give them. Not even able to enjoy it while you live. Listen to what he says here, verse 22. What does a man get for all his toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his work, all his days, his work, his pain and grief, even at night, his mind does not rest. This too is vanity or meaningless. It's this, it's, it's this sad, sad picture of the workaholic who is chasing ultimate gain in life through his work, thinking, if I just work hard enough, I'll, have ult- I'll, I'll be the master of my universe. I'll end up on top. And, and, so, and so the workaholic is anxious constantly worried that they're not working hard enough. They're not going to get ahead. They're frustrated because they're trying to get ahead and things just keep getting in the way. Living in a cursed world where things don't work the way they're made to work, where the laptop dies, where the person you ask to help you on the project completely drops the ball, where the car breaks down, where there's no rain for your crops. At the end of the day, And even at the end of the day, when when he jumps into bed to rest for the day, he keeps working in his head. You know that feeling, don't you? Where you wake up at three o'clock, you've had two hours sleep, three hours sleep, you wake up at three o'clock and you just start working for a couple of hours in your bed. Battling, 
fighting against reality, trying to make ultimate profit out of life through hard work. Solomon's crash test life couldn't catch the wind. He could not beat the tree. Wisdom, he says, is, or study is better than foolishness, but ultimately futile. Smash. Pleasure, it's good at the time, but ultimately fleeting. Smash. Hard work, it's better than laziness, but you can't in the end keep what you work for. Smash. He couldn't catch the wind. A depressing reality. And so the question becomes then, how then do we live? I remember I was at university and a friend of mine kind of was exploring Christian faith and Ecclesiastes is one of the books he first read and he came back to me after reading and thinking, well, what's the point of living then? If that's what it's all about, what is the point? Is there any opportunity for meaning and enjoyment in this cursed, broken world? Well, verse 24, he, take, he kind of turns a corner and he shows us another way to live. Verse 24 of chapter 2, it says, A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? And so he says, there is an alternative to the profit mentality in life. Not gain apart from God, but enjoying life as a gift from God. The God, he says here, the God who cursed the world, laying a heavy burden on men, is also the God who gives his children food and drink and the ability to enjoy their work. The secret to joy, the secret to life is to give up trying to get ultimate gain apart from God to enjoy life as a gift from God. But it's more than just the best way to live or the smartest way to live or the way to get ahead. It's actually the right way. Verse 26, he says, To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge and happiness. The one who pleases him, it's, it's not the person who, 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 the good person. The one who pleases him is the one who receives his gift from his hand, who fears God, turning from sin, and trusts him by receiving his gifts. Keep reading, 26, second half. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The gain life of, of collecting and giving, in the end, having to give on to someone else, working hard for no ultimate gain is actually the sinful life. So the gift life, receiving as a gift, is pleasing to God. The gain life of trying to get ultimate profit from God, apart from Him, is a life of sin. Well, how does that work? How does that, what, what does that look like? Well, Paul, a follower of Jesus, explains, he, he kind of says the same thing in Romans chapter 1. Paul says, God's anger is against those who ignore the truth that He is the God of this world, that He is the Creator God. He says they ignore it on purpose that He is the Creator because it's said clearly in His creation. Verse 21, he says of chapter 1, For although they knew God, they did not honour Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became Futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. The word futile there is the same word in Ecclesiastes. 
It's, it's the word hebel. They were futile in their thinking. How? Verse 25. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. See, futile thinking is worshipping or giving worth to and serving creation rather than the creator. Seeking ultimate gain by chasing after created things rather than the creator of things. Instead of enjoying our job as a gift, we worship it by trying to get from it money and status and power. See, effectively, Ecclesiastes gives you two ways to live. You have the gain life and you have the gift life. And so you'll see up on the screen now, and maybe you just want to keep that slide up for, for while I'm speaking through it. You have the gain life, which worships creation. You have the gift life that worships the creator. You have the gain life, which is depressing, frustrating, futile, sleepless. You have the gift life, which is eating and drinking and resting and finding enjoyment in your work. You have the gain life, which seeks to enjoy, control and profit apart from God. You have the gift life, which enjoys everything in dependence on and with God. You have the gain life that ignores that we live in a cursed world. You have the gift life that recognizes we are in a good but cursed world. You have the gain life that is sinful. You have the gift life that pleases God. You have the gain life that does not trust God and his wisdom. You have the gift life that trusts God and his wisdom. You have the gain life that does not thank God. You have the gift life that is life of thanks. You have the gain life, which in the end is a life of slavery. You have the gift life which is a life of freedom, a life of freedom. See, the, the, the gain life tries to hold on to God's gifts with closed hands, thinking, if I can hold on to these things, then I can master my, I can be God. Really, that's the promise. I can be God and master life. Whereas the gift life has open hands with everything that God gives us, every blessing, every gift, everything that we have, with open hands, thanking God for it. Saying, all these things are yours, God. They're not mine. I'm never going to get anything ultimately from myself. So I enjoy them with you by giving thanks. The gain life versus the gift life. Now, how do we live that way? How do we pursue the gift life and not the gain life? Well, Roman, because Romans 1 says, we instinctively as sinners... Without consciously thinking it, we wake up in the morning without consciously, we pursue the gain life. We want to be God and have his stuff, but we don't want to have him. Even when we find ourselves grasping for, against air, even though we hit the world, wall of life, hit the tree and think, man, this isn't working the way it's supposed to work, where things don't go to plan, we still have this enslavement to thinking, but next time it'll be different. <laughs> next time I'll be able to grab that wind. We can think, keep thinking, we can run the world, that we can master it without God, that we can rule the world like God. 
So the gift life, it might be the solution. It might look great to talk about and it sounds so much more enjoyable, but instinctively struggle to choose it. And so that's the whole, you know, that's the whole Old Testament story, isn't it? God's people worship other gods to get profit, you know, prosperity, whatever it is. They worship a whole bunch of different gods instead of living the gift life of trusting in God. And so what's the answer? What's the answer to this instinct within us that always wants to live this gift life, that chases after the wind? Well, there was one who did not live the gain life. One person who worked this, walked this earth who did not completely live the gain life, and that was Jesus. God's only son, the ruler of all things, became Jesus the man. He gave up the glory he had with God the Father. He gave up the gain mentality, in a sense, of trying to profit for himself. And he did that. Why? To give us the greatest gift imaginable. Hanging on the cross, he was punished as one who never trusted God, who always tried to reject God to get gain apart from him. Why? So that we would receive all that he had. We would receive a perfect relationship with God the Father where you are his child. We would receive God the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of us. We would receive by faith every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We would receive one day a place in his new perfect paradise. Jesus gives us the greatest treasure. And see, this is how it works. When you receive the ultimate gift of Jesus when you recognize, and to the degree you recognize, you've received the ultimate gift of Jesus, it sets you free from trying to find that ultimate gain somewhere else. It sets you free from trying to find that ultimate gain somewhere else. We Christians who understand the ultimate gift you have in Jesus can enjoy work without seeking to get ultimate gain from their work, wealth from their worth, status from their worth, power from their work. We can play sport without wanting people to say we're a good player because we have the ultimate gift of knowing Jesus. We can enjoy our house without a constant desire for a bigger one and a bigger one and a, and a, and a better one because we have the ultimate gift of Jesus. We are set, our hearts are set free. Having... The greatest gift in Jesus sets us free to enjoy life as it truly is meant to be enjoyed, as God's gift. We are set free to live a life of thankfulness for everything we have. See, Christianity is often stereotyped as a, as a religion that sucks the enjoyment out of life, isn't it? We're the, we're the kind of the killjoys of any situation. But the reality is that Christians have the capacity to enjoy life more than anyone else. We can drink coffee, we can go surfing, we can work at our jobs, we can hang out with friends, we can go to parties and not treat those things like they're tools to get them ourselves ultimate gain. We can enjoy them as a gift without trying to get ultimate satisfaction them because we have ultimate satisfaction found in our relationship with the Lord. See, Christian faith can enable you to enjoy life more than anyone else. But here's the thing. You only ever enjoy life as a gift to the degree you enjoy Jesus as the ultimate gift. Contentment is life is only found in finding ultimate contentment 
in him. What does that look like? What does that look like? Well, it starts with repentance. It starts by turning around. Turning from pursuing ultimate gain. Now, some here this morning might not have ever turned and trusted in Jesus. And so I'm encouraging you today to consider what's being said. Consider your life. Be like the teacher here and observe your life and think to yourself, have I ever had ultimate gain? Try and, try and see in your life whether you actually managed to catch the wind. And if you have managed to catch the wind, then, then completely disregard what I've said. But my guess is you haven't. My guess is you haven't. And that is an indication, indication that you are in a good but broken world. A broken world because you and I have rejected the God of the universe. And so this morning, I'm encouraging you to turn from that life of rejecting God to get ultimate gain apart from Him, to trust in Jesus and receive Jesus as your ultimate gift, that you might be set free to enjoy life as it's meant to be lived. But for some of you today, most of you today, I'm assuming, you have turned and trusted in Jesus. And so I think that, again, the challenge for you is, what wind are you chasing? What wind are you chasing? What, what, what are you trying to grab for? What are you thinking will help you get ahead, make you just that little bit more happy, make you, make you master your life? Friend, whatever it is, turn and trust and receive again. Remember again the gift you have in Jesus. Stop chasing the wind but practice thankfulness. See, that's, what, that's the positive of what this passage is saying. Not just turn from choosing, you know, choosing to pursue gain, but it actually is, is teaching us practice thankfulness. See, every second of every day, a Christian has something to be thankful for. And yet, if I was to chart my life, if I had a bit of a, a graph going of, of how often or, uh, or, or, or how, const, how thankful I am at any particular day, I'm down here. <laughs> Live a life of thankfulness. Practice thankfulness. Habitually think to yourself, how can I be thankful for this? How can I be thankful for this? How can I be thankful for this? And so as you enjoy God's gifts, whether it's coffee, whether it's a surf, whether it's time with your kids, whether it's your work, spend time thanking the Lord for his good gifts and stop chasing the wind. Let me pray. Father God, we just want to praise you for this morning because you have done something extraordinary. You've given us the ultimate gift of relationship with you through Jesus. And so, Father, we praise you and thank you that that has the capacity to set us free from trying to live for the things of this world by getting ultimate gain out of created things, getting, trying to get something out of things that were never meant to give us. Father, I pray this morning, particularly for those people who have still not figured out that they are running into the tree of life, who still have not figured out that they're chasing wind, I pray that you would open their blind eyes, that they might see the ultimate gift of Jesus and be set free to enjoy life as your gift. 
And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.